be okay? Would you mind standing up? And I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we'll be looking... We'll be looking at our text this morning in 14 and 15. Philippians chapter 2, 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you'd help me to share your word and make it applicable to our lives this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And would you mind turning to one another and say, we don't want to see Marla move the piano by herself. Would you do that? You may be seated. I started this series to the book of Philippians a while back, a couple of weeks ago, but we've had different things going on the last couple of Sundays, so I feel like it's been a while. But, but I want to begin with a story that I heard. I heard about three sons. There were three sons that did really, really well in life. Financially speaking, they did really, 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 really well in life. So they wanted to bless their mother. So the oldest son bought his mother a large house, a large house. The second son bought his mother a fancy car. The third son said, um, since mother loves to read the Bible, but she can barely see, I got her a specially trained parrot that can quote the entire Bible. A few months later, they got a letter from their mother, a circular letter. They said the same thing, copies to all three sons. It said, Milton, the house that you built me is too big. It's too big. Gerald, the car that you bought me is too small. But my dearest Donald, my dearest Donald, your simple gift was my favorite. The chicken was delicious. <laughs> that's corny, I know, but that's fun. <laughs> Oh, man, a life. <clears throat> Isn't it true, though? We, we, we often, it's true, we often do, we often do well, many, well many things for other people, but sometimes they don't receive it that way. We try to do well many things for people, but sometimes they don't receive it that way. However, one of the greatest things that you can do for your family, that you can do for your workplace, that you can do for your next-door neighborhood, that you can do for the church, is conquer complaining. Conquer complaining. Did you know that a number of years ago, I was complaining to my wife about the weather. I was complaining to Kathy about our church situation. I was complaining to Kathy about uh, our children. And Kathy said to me, Ron, you are becoming a habitual complainer and grump. That's what she said. And so I know what I'm talking about when I share this particular passage of Scripture with you this morning, 
and we look at these other scriptures associated with this, I know what I'm talking about because it is important not to become a habitual complainer. And it's so easy to do. And so we want to talk about that particular subject this morning because the Apostle Paul addresses it here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. One more time. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in in the universe. Now, I think that there are examples of four common types of complainers in Scripture. There are, t- there are four types of, uh, of complainers that I see in Scripture. The first is the whiner. Now, David, the man after God's own heart, wasn't always a whiner. But there's a certain period in his life, and it usually happens when we're involved in stress, and things are not happening, and things are not going right, and we become a whiner. And often these people wake up negative during this period of time, and they rise and they whine. David said in Psalm 71:13. Have I been wasting my time? Why take all the time and trouble to be pure? All I get out of it is more trouble and woe. Why make the effort to serve the Lord? Because in my serving of the Lord, it seems like the more I serve Him, the more trouble I get in my life. And the telltale sign of a whiner is this. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. Everybody else gets all the breaks. Did you know that Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 11 verses, excuse me, Matthew 20 verses 11 and 12. And he told about this fellow that hired these people, you might want to say at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he hired this group of men. And they worked an entire eight-hour day, and he paid them fair wages. He gave them good wages, fair wages. But there was another group of men that came along at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and he paid them the same amount of money, the same exact amount of money, And those people who worked a full eight-hour day said to the employer, it's not fair. It wasn't their money. It was the employer's money. It was the employer. They could do what they want. But it's not fair because they did not work a full eight-hour day whining and complaining about something. And so life is not fair. God never said life is going to be fair. The second type of common uh, type of complainer is what I call the martyr. And there was a particular time in Moses' life where it's almost humorous, and their favorite phrase is, no one appreciates me. And this is found in Numbers 11, verses 11 through 15. It says, Moses, this, it, it's, I find it humorous. I, I, I just laugh out loud when I read this. Moses said to the Lord, why pick on me? To give me the burdens of a people like this. He's talking about the Israelite people. I can't carry this nation by myself. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. It will be kindness. Let me out of this impossible situation. And often the martyr, these individuals are pros at having pity parties. When, when they're sick and when they're under pressure, everybody knows about it. And how do you react when you're under pressure? The, fir- the third is what I call the cynic, and I believe that Solomon at times became a cynic in his life, especially his early part of life. The favorite phrase of the cynic is, nothing will ever change. And I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 1, 2 through 4 and verse 9. This is what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. Life is useless. You spend your life working, and what do you have to show for it? The world stays just the same 
what has been done before will be done again. He's cynical. We're talking about four common types of complainers. And the fourth type is the perfectionist. Now, I couldn't think of a scriptural example, but I can think of individuals that are married to perfectionists because they've told me that they're married to perfectionists. And it could be your spouse. It could be your husband. I've heard of people saying, my coworker is a perfectionist. It could be your next-door neighbor. We all have people that we encounter in our life that have perfectionistic tendencies. And for a person that has this, nothing is ever right for this person. It's never good enough. Their favorite phrase is, is this the best that you can do? And an example of this is Proverbs 27:15. Look at it with me. A nagging wife is like a water going drip, drip, drip on a rainy day. You can laugh. Come on. Proverbs 21:19. Better to live out in the desert than with a nagging, complaining wife. Now listen, this refers to husbands too. Say amen, ladies. This refers to husbands too. Nagging perfectionists. Always arguing. Nothing destroys the warmth of a home faster than complaining. And did you know, those of you who are parents, if your kids are continually complaining, ask yourself if you're setting the example. Ask yourself that question. Now, how do you conquer complaining? Well, the Bible says, notice our, our primary scripture is, let's say it one more time. Look at it with me. Let's say it together. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Let's say it one more time. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Well, how do you do that? Well, I think there's a number of scriptural principles. First of all, you have, to, you have to admit that it's a problem. You have to admit that it's a problem. You have to admit that it's a problem for you and not other people. You have the problem. Look at Proverbs 28, 13. A man who refuses to admit, circle that word, refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. One of the most difficult things in our lives is recognizing and learning how to handle complaining and how to see it in ourselves when we are complaining. If someone were to go around with a tape recorder for one week, what kind of conversations, what kind of things would they hear coming out of our mouth? How much time do we spend griping and grumping and complaining and arguing and saying life absolutely stinks? You gotta admit, it's a problem. In fact, again, circle the word admit and would you circle the word confess in Proverbs 28:13? Complaining. Listen, I believe I believe this is what the scripture teaches. The context tells us complaining is not just a bad habit. It can become a sin. It can become a sin. We need to confess it. If it's a sin, it's serious. Did you know that complaining was what kept the Israelites out of the promised land? Complaining kept the Israelites out of the promised land. God said, I'm not going to allow the first generation of Israelites, I'm going to allow them to wander around 40 plus years because of their, their murmuring. That's another word for complaining. It says specifically in the Old Testament, we, we see six, seven times that they murmured, they murmured, they murmured, they murmured, they murmured. And God got so tired of it that he didn't allow that first generation of Israelite people into the promised land except for Jacob and Caleb. It's a sin. 
This is how serious God says it is. Now, not everyone does the things that we would do. Isn't that true? Not everybody does the things that we would do. Not everybody says the things that we would say. And not everybody believes the things that we would believe. But that doesn't mean we have to complain about it. There are lots of things that people do and say that I don't like. I have to admit that it's a problem. The second thing I, I see here is that I must accept responsibility for my own life. I've got to accept responsibility for my own life. Did you know that many times complaining is just the it's just an attempt to blame other people for the problems I've created. It's just an attempt to blame other people for the problems I've created or to excuse myself or to put the focus on somebody else. I have to accept the responsibility for my own life. Look at Proverbs 19.3. Some people ruin themselves by their own dumb mistakes, stupid mistakes, and then blame the Lord. And the primary example of this that comes to my mind is Susan Smith. Do you remember that lady a number of years ago? There was this lady, I believe she was from North Carolina. She had a, a bad first marriage. She divorced her husband, and then she, she got this boyfriend. And this boyfriend did not like children, and she had two little boys. And so she ended up putting her two little boys, if you can believe it, in the back seat of a car. And then she put, the, uh, she put the transmission in neutral, and she rolled it down into a lake, and her two little boys drowned because of what she did. And then... She blamed it on a black motorist. She said a black motorist stopped her and, uh, and apprehended her, and, and, and uh, they, they took her two boys, and that's how they ended up dead. Well, the sheriff of that particular community was suspicious from the very beginning, and he questioned her and found out, and she finally admitted that she was the one responsible for killing her two boys. But the story doesn't end there because in prison... In prison, she was interviewed, and I remember watching the interview with one of those programs, 60 Minutes or 2020 or whatever it may be, and Susan Smith had the audacity to say, God was the one that allowed me to kill my children. She blamed it on God. Now, isn't it true there are times that people do things to us, and there are things that happen beyond our control, but there are some things that we do. So if we drop the ball... Who are we going to blame on how it bounces? Right? Right? If we drop the ball, we have to take responsibility for the things that we do and for the things that we say. We reap what we sow. Now, I've heard a lot of people say over the years, you know, they complain about their indebtedness. Now, could it be, not always, but could it be somewhere back there when we were making decisions that, that we did some irresponsible decisions and choices and we made some purchases that perhaps we should not have made? Now, remember what the Bible says. We reap what we sow. So we need to accept responsibility for our own life and we need to also admit that it's a problem. We're talking about complaining. And, and, I, and I see number three here. I believe the scripture teaches that we need to develop the attitude of gratitude. This is not some sort of positive thinking. Robert Schuller, this is what the scripture teaches. We need to develop the attitude of gratitude. And I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. And notice Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And would you circle the word all? God says, I want you to be thankful in all circumstances. It does not say for um, in, in, in all circumstances, but it does not say for all circumstances. In other words, Paul says, be thankful 
in all circumstances, but not for all circumstances. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Ron? Well, we're not to be thankful when we get in a car accident. We're not to be thankful when something bad happens to us. Not for all, but in all. And there's a difference there. Because we're looking that there could be something good in the particular situation that we find ourselves in. Or there's something good that will come out of the situation. Not for, but in the midst of these circumstances. We're to have the attitude of gratitude. Now, you can be thankful for the circumstances. Uh, you, can, you cannot be thankful for the circumstances, but you can be thankful in the situations that we find ourselves in. Because we know that God is working for the good in our lives. Now, this attitude of gratitude is very, very important in life because, as I said, when I first started my message and first started my series, the Apostle Paul said, I rejoice, I continue to rejoice. And he was in prison. He was chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we asked the question, how could Apostle Paul do that? Well, often we say, well, I'm only going to be happy if the situations and circumstances are right. If I get rid of these problems over here, then I'll be happy. But the problem is, once you get rid of these set of problems, then you get a whole other set of problems because life is not problem-free. So if we're waiting for life to be problem-free in order to be happy, we're never going to be happy. And so he says, in all circumstances, in the midst of them, while we're going through it. And did you know we have a lot to be thankful for? If you live in the United States, it is so true, the poorest person in the United States it's richer than the two-thirds two of the rest of the world. And those of us, those of us that are Christian people and live in Grant County, we're, we're blessed people. As far as I can tell, we don't have any smog. We don't have any traffic problems. I was at the True Value Hardware Store this past summer, and the clerk was on the street side, and he looked out the window, and traffic was backed up two cars to Lynn's. <laughs> and he said, heavy traffic today. You don't know what traffic is. <laughs> and we don't have any smog to speak of. And, you know, what crime do we have? I mean, you know, I know they're serious crime, but really, compared to other communities. Now, I'm not saying we don't have problems. Don't, don't under, misunderstand me here. But <laughs> the attitude of gratitude. Of course there are things that we're not satisfied with in life. There, there are some things in our marriages that you don't like. There are some things in business that you don't like in your business. There are some habits in yourself that you don't like in your mate, in your children, your boss. But, but I believe there are also some things in those situations and people that we can learn to be thankful for. The Bible says that Christian people are to be different. We're not to have habitual complaining in our life. We're to do everything without complaining and arguing. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Notice, he says, I've learned, there it is again, to be content whatever 
this circumstance. Would you circle the word content? And again, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, he was in prison. And what I'm trying to say is, and I believe what the Bible is trying to teach here, is that when you learn to be content in any and every situation, and when you learn not to complain so much about the circumstances of life, then you are, in essence, reflecting what Jesus taught, and you're becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Maturity. Now, I'm not going to be controlled by the circumstances around me. I'm not going to do that. And we're basically saying, God, when we say that, when we say, God, you, you give me a raw deal, and 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 uh, I I I can't and and all I can't do nothing with the circumstances you dealt me. We're we're really saying that we can be God, and we think that we're doing we could do a better job than the God can do, because God allows circumstances. The Bible tells me. So we need to develop the attitude of gratitude. Remember the story that uh, Jesus. Uh, the encounter that Jesus had one day in his earthly ministry. He encountered ten lepers. And leprosy is a terrible, awful disease. It's one of those diseases that rots the flesh and the bones away. And often people do not actually die from the leprosy. They die from the infection caused by the leprosy. It's a terrible, terrible disease. And in Jesus' day, they not only had to face the leprosy, but they were also social outcasts. Because when you were a leper and you encountered a person that did not have leprosy, 20, 40 yards away, you were to yell, unclean, unclean, unclean. And so Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, encountered one day 10 lepers. And I believe... The context tells us, uh, it doesn't say specifically exactly all that happened, but I believe, I don't think I'm conjecturing too much, that Jesus went up to those individuals and touched them, embraced them, ministered to them, and then the Bible says he healed their leprosy. Every single one of them. Completely gone. But there's a footnote to the story, right? Only one of the ten of the lepers came back and expressed their gratitude toward him. Where were the other nine? Where were they at? The attitude of gratitude. Number four here. We need to look for God's hand in the circumstances. We need to look for God's hand in the circumstances. If you want to get victory over complaining, you have to look for God's hand in the circumstances. And we believe that God is working in the midst of the circumstances of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Notice the Apostle Paul also wrote here, This small and temporary trouble we suffer will bring us a tremendous and eternal glory, much greater than the trouble. Underline that circle. Much greater than the trouble. So what do we do? We don't fix our eyes. So we fix our attention not on the things that are seen. We don't fix our eyes on the problem so much, although we're not putting our head in the sand. We're not having a Pollyanna attitude. We're admitting it. It is a problem, and you cry about it, and you weep over it, and you have, you have a hard time with it at times. You're not denying that you don't have the problem. He's not saying that. So we fix our attention not on the things that are seen, not so much on the problems, but the things that are unseen. 
What is seen lasts only for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. And the Apostle Paul is not denying the fact that problems don't come in our life. Problems come into our lives. There is no question. There is absolutely no doubt about that. They do come in our lives. But because God is working these things for the good in our life, and the good that you're going to get out of it will be much more lasting than the problem. That's what he says, much more lasting. And I don't even understand that. And perhaps he's talking about in this lifetime, or perhaps he's talking about eternity, when we get our crowns in heaven, because the Bible says we will get our crowns in heaven. Perhaps that's in this lifetime or a lifetime, but these temporary things will be gone, and the unseen things, the eternal perspective, will be given to us. And those things will outlast the temporary problems in our life, because God is working in our lives. Now, I, I just have to, I prayed about it earlier, and I just have to let you know that, that, um, that there, there's a fine line here. And, and I don't know for you when you cross that line. I, I know when I do it. And that is, in the midst of the suffering and the pain, when I question God's wisdom. I've done that. Do you really know what you're doing? I'm, I'm doubting God's care. Do you really love me? And yet, in Romans 8, it says, neither height nor depth nor principality nor power nor things present nor things to come can ever, ever separate us from the love of God. So I can't depend upon what I'm feeling. I have to go back to what the Bible says. And number three, when I'm doing that, I'm often forgetting God's goodness. I'm focused on what I don't have rather than focused on what I do have. And number five here, you need to speak positively. It doesn't mean that you can't share your emotions with God and other people, and it doesn't mean that you can't say, this is how I'm feeling, and you can't even you know, go toe-to-toe with someone and say, you know, this is what I believe about this subject. It doesn't mean that. But when I'm talking about speaking positively, I'm talking about replacing complaining that has become a habit. Habits are only broken by replacing them with something else. Because the Apostle Paul goes on and says, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is good report, think about these things. So you take out the negative complaining and you replace it with the, the positive word. Now, I'm not talking about naming and claiming and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about replacing it with, Lord, I know that you love them. I know that you, they're your child. I'm having a difficult time with them. I lift them up to you in prayer instead of bad-mouthing them, instead of putting them down. The Bible says that we're going to give an account for every single idle word. And Paul's saying, don't let any junk come out of your mouth, but only that which is, helps people and builds them up and benefits them. Now, this, this is very crucial for parenting. Those of, you, those of us who have children still at home, affirmation always gets better results than nagging. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Don't keep on scolding and nagging your children, making them angry and resentful. Rather, bring them up with loving discipline and godly advice. So, what's the results? Let's go back to our primary scripture right now. What are the results of not complaining? 
It says do, do everything without complaining, do everything without arguing, and notice the results. He gives three specific results so that what? So that, first of all, you can become blameless, blameless. Church family, I'm almost finished. But when you don't give in to complaining or arguing, the Bible says the result is you can become blameless. That means when you don't complain, nobody can find fault with you. They may disagree with you, but they can't find fault with you in the biblical sense. The second result is, and you will be pure. And the Greek word here means having integrity. Having integrity. Non-complainers are people who have integrity. They're respected by our world. People are drawn to them. And notice the final result, uh, number three. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Because our culture is so negative and people live in such a doggy tog type of mentality that when we do not complain and when we don't give in to argument, it doesn't mean, again, you can't express your opinions, but we don't give in to arguing and, and one-upmanship and I've got to, I'm going to win this argument because I'm smarter than you are, I'm bigger than you are, I have more power than you or whatever it may be. It just means that you will be uh, a testimony for Jesus Christ. He says you'll be like a shining, shining stars. In California, where we came from, there is a place called Mercer Caverns, and they give tours. And you pay so much money, you give a tour of the cabin, a uh, tour of the, of the cave, and you go in there, and it's well lit, and there's all kinds of stalagmites and stalactites and all those things, and it's, it's really a beautiful place. They take you to the very bottom, and then they turn off all the lights, and they tell you ahead of time, I'm going to turn all the lights. And it's pitch dark. can't even see your hand in front of you. And then they turn all lights again. And you're so thankful that you can see. And, and that's how I see it. When we're not complaining and arguing, we, we shine. There's a brilliance about us. We're a witness for, for Christ. I, I want to close uh, with a story from Kathleen Hart. Kathleen and Archibald Hart are, are writers and authors and teachers and and uh, in her little pamphlet here she tells this story and I want you to listen to it. I grew up in South Africa. One day my mother and I were having lunch with a group of women and one of them in a fit of jealousy made a spiteful and insulting remark to my mother. I saw the hurt in her eyes, but she continued to act in a gracious and loving manner and ignored the remark. Later, one of the women asked her why she had not vindicated herself but allowed her attacker to get away with her nasty words. Her reply made a lasting impression on my life. 
she said, quote, I will not allow anyone to decide how I'm going to act. Long ago, I decided how I would act toward other people. I will not react to their words and behavior. I choose to be in control and continue being who I am in Christ. At that moment, she was living, Proverbs 12:16. A fool shows his or her annoyance at once, but a prudent man or woman overlooks an insult. Over the years, because of her actions and attitudes, a principle was planned in my heart, she writes. It's this, don't react, but choose to act. My mother role modeled to me the Christ-like principle that ruled her life. She was in control of her emotions most of the time. Knew who she would act, knew how she would act ahead of time. She was prepared and made her choices. She had decided what her purpose was. Her motive was to please and glorify God in all the words and actions. Desire that the life of Jesus Christ would be manifested in her mortal flesh. She was living in obedience to God's word. She was meek, not weak. Her strength was never needed to be demonstrated by anger or aggressiveness. She was in control and she carefully chose her actions and attitudes. The last 40 years, that, that was 40 years ago and she has gone to be with the Lord, but it took me 20 years. We're all learning, aren't we? It took me 20 years to grasp the importance of this principle and to learn how to put it into practice. It has brought me the greatest freedom in relationships and circumstances and ministry. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together.